say tonight is that when any just don't believe me because I say so, but search the scriptures, let the Bible be the final say. We're in 1 Samuel 9, so go ahead and turn there. I'll kind of take you up to, to, to speed and uh, correct all the things that Daniel got wrong last week. I'm just kidding. He didn't get anything. It was beautiful. I just got I had the privilege today of being able to listen to Daniel. Uh, and that was real, real sweet. So thank you, Daniel, for sending me that. Uh, it just it makes your heart so warm to know how the Lord uses people and just and, and teaches so richly. First Samuel 8 is departure. It's a pivotal time in the history of Israel. Because it's a time now where Samuel is old. And of course the people even tell him that. Uh, you know, when you're younger you skate past that I think a little bit more than when you're older. And they say, look, you're old. And that just kind of cuts the quick. But it says, you know, he made his... Now, the one thing we do read again is that Samuel, when though being old, he made his children, his two children, uh, he made them judges after him. And of course, who wouldn't want your children to take on the legacy uh, the problem is, in this case, that they were both punks. Very similar, I sense, from, of course, from Ellie, the guy who, in essence, kind of raised Samuel. And it's interesting, and I wonder how much of Samuel's sons were influenced by the guy that would have been more the grandfather in the house, the oldest man in the house, apparently, and that would be Ellie, with his two kids, if you remember, Serpent Mouth and Puncher. Uh, and so there is this case, and Daniel, I thought, brought it, really delivered it really well. Which is, uh, you could be a really godly dad, and that doesn't mean you'll have really godly kids. Uh, and he did, I, he did a fantastic job of just showing uh, in Scripture how Samuel really did live a life that was really above reproach. Matter of fact, at the end of his life, he's going to tell them, he's like, you know, as, as they start moving away from him and towards a king, a physical king, uh, and he's like, hey, which ox have I taken? I mean, which, which one of you have I cheated? Which one of you have I, have I done anything against? And they're all like, we're all witnesses. Man, you are, you're the deal. Now, it's a loose paraphrase, but we'll see that in a couple weeks. However, he's like, so but that's not the deal. And Samuel, by the way, has this nasty habit of what we all do at times like this. When people really turn away from the Lord, and then they start talking to us in that state, we might call it an unconsecrated state, a state not set apart from God. And that's really important because it becomes a real theme for all of this. Is Consecrate really just means to set apart. There are uh, over 23 million uh, Chinese children in the world that are girls. But one of them has my surname. And she is set apart. Among all of the other Chinese children in the world, there is one that is my daughter. There are equally as many blonde girls that are in their late teens in the world. But only one of those bears my surname. There is over three billion women in the world. But only one of those women is my wife. They are consecrated to me because they are set apart from all of the others of their category by virtue of the relationship I have with them. Understand what we're going to do and we're going to see as we meet Saul tonight is he's a guy with a fantastic, tremendous calling, but no consecration. And he is, as God promised, a king is a representative of the people. And the people want such a king because they have unconsecrated hearts. And there's our problem. So when Samuel says, and what have I done? He takes it personally 
Because when the people ask for a king, it's interesting. I wonder how much of that Samuel thought he was. But, but, but in that, what's clear is, is, that, is that Samuel really takes personal that there are unconsecrated hearts that look at Samuel in a way they, that they really don't. And, and reasonably, in a sense, they don't want those punks ruling over them, Samuel's kids. And we do read again, as, as Daniel brought out, they turned aside. Which means somewhere they were in the right place, but turned away from that right place after dishonest gain. So in 8.5, the people say, make us a king, and Samuel prays. And it's important to recognize what you should do and what I should do when we take something personal because someone says something in the flesh. These are people supposed to be people of God. You do is you take it to the Lord. And you say, these are Christians or people claiming to be Christians. And they're saying this, and God, give me your perspective. And God says, hey, the issue isn't you, the issue is me. When the more that you start to reflect Christ, the more that people, to be honest, when they're running from him, are going to have a hard time with you. You're probably aware of that. Hey, not, not just because somebody doesn't call you anymore doesn't mean that's the purpose, but it could very well be. And God says they've not rejected you. They've rejected me that I should not reign over them. The reason that people wanted, when they were rejecting anyone, they were rejecting the lordship of the Lord. For the tangible. I'm so tired of you ruling over us. Understand their basic reason they tell us is that we would be like the rest of the world. Tired of looking different. Tired of being different. Do you get that? Because you know what it is to be different? It's to be consecrated. I'm tired of the world looking at me weird because they're like, oh, you believe in something you can't see? How weird is that? I'm tired of people looking at me like that. I want to be like everyone else. The problem is the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he put his spirit inside of you and the work, the construction the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you is making you different from the world. So for you to try to look like the rest of the world, you are fighting the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you to make you the masterpiece God ordained to try to blend in with the world that's already going down with the Titanic. How sad. God says if they really want that, you better warn them. He will take six different times, he says, If you want a king, an earthly king, if you want to trade God in for the tangible, he will take. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take your servants, male and female. He'll take your produce. He will take your animals, the best of all of those, for his purposes. So you recognize the difference between God is your king, where you'll read he will give, and man is your king, he will take. The people say, no, 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 we don't care. First Samuel 8, 19 and 20. We want a king so we could be like the rest of the world, so that he could judge us, so he could go in and out from among us and fight our battles. All the things, by the way, that make us an idol out of anything. We're tired of being different. 
So we want to assimilate. We want someone that will adjudicate. We want someone that will represent. And somebody that will handle our altercations. I get all of that. But it was the product of an unconsecrated heart. And all of a sudden, please hear me in this, they're looking at the world for their identity, not the Lord. So a king has to represent them. Who are you? If we weren't sitting in pews, well, I'm not, but you are. If we weren't in church and somebody were to approach you on the street and say, who are you? What's your first response? A man, a woman, by your occupation, by your color or race or gender, nationality. By where you come from. I'm a Croydonite. I'm straight out of Croydon. Which one of us, the first thing that come out of our mouth is, I'm a Christian. I am blood-bought, rescued, saved, delivered, resurrected by the power of Jesus. You could be too. The reason I say that is I really believe every one of us gets our identity from the world. The problem is, as you're probably aware of this, that the world around us is really busy and very active in redefining items so that sooner or later, if you're going to get your identity from the world, you can't get your identity from the world and be a full-on Christian. Have you seen that yet? So now we move to this issue about... At the end, Samuel's like, well, everybody, God says he's going to give that to you. Everyone go home. So they did. Chapters 9 through 15 focus on this guy, Saul. Saul, by the way, Shual means desired or sought after. It's a very important name for this, of course. Because it's exactly what we're going to find here. It's a guy that people really want, they desire, they would seek after. But let me give you one more thing as a pretense that this never took God by surprise. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, before they take the promised land, and what God may do to sort of sum up all of the first four books in regards to doctrinally, he says in verse 14 of 17, <coughs> When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are all around me. God made clear, there is going to be a day you're going to do this, and I already know it. The most amazing thing is, God never said, because I know you're going to do that, the relationship is off. I'm not interested. God already knew that they would turn from him. God already knew that they would replace him in their hearts, and he still didn't leave them. I think that's noteworthy. And he says, if that's the case, you shall certainly set a king. Let me give you some standards, some requirements. This is verse 15 of Deuteronomy 17. He says, You shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. You can't just pick anyone. One from among your brethren, you shall set a king over you. Not a foreigner. The guy's got to be a Jew. You will not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And he has these four requirements in regards to behavior. Verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Don't go to Egypt to get your stuff. And of course, that's your security. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest they turn his heart away. And of course, there's your passion. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver or gold for himself. And of course, there is your security again, your defense, if you will. There's what you rest on. 
Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from one of the priests, the Levites. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up among, among, above his brethren, that he may turn aside, not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. He says, look, this is what I'm looking for. And when you do, when you do ask, I'm not going to be happy about it, but when you do ask for a king, you better make sure he's Jewish. And you better make sure of this, that his power is in me, not in horses, that he's multiplied from other places. That his passion is in me and not in trying to find just some form of love to replace me. That is, if you will, that security is in me and not in the gold and silver that he could amass. And that his direction is in me and not in something else. By the book that I write, he'll get clarity. And let me say, these are the things that become idols in our own lives. I mean, we look and we think, all right, well, where's my power? I feel weak and I need power. Where do I get my power from? And we realize in all of this, we're running and finding horses back in the world we came from. That's our Egypt. Or I can't tell you how many times, and it hurts so much, beloved, as a pastor who loves the flock, watching people who seem to be so in love with Jesus turn aside to somebody that clearly isn't as in love with Jesus as they are, but they call themselves Christian. And then you watch them and you think, man, I've seen this great passion for Christ. I see this great ministry in your life. I see this great focus. And then they're off to the races elsewhere. Look, there's nothing wrong with falling in love. As long as there's no competition between that and Christ. As long as you don't think that person's there to complete you, you're in trouble if you do. Because Christ is your completion. We read that in Colossians. You are complete in Him. You look and think, but if I need real security, this is what I need to do. And you bail on Christ for it? That's so crazy. And you're amassing gold and silver. Then you find direction from people who call themselves experts who clearly stand against the Word of God. And you're in some form of crisis. Because you can't figure out what the truth is. But it wasn't a problem when you just read his word and you compared everything to it. So that's what we know. And of course, we're going to see that lived out profoundly in the life of Solomon, who will be, by the way, the third guy in line. That'll be this guy, Solomon, then David and Solomon. Solomon, we're going to find, is going to be guilty of all of these counts. And of course, that will be the penchant for, of course, his, his departure. So we read this now in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man from Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherat, the son of Achfia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Now, I remind you, the idea is God says he's going to give him a king, and so we kind of know there's And he says, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was, there was not a more handsome person from among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other person. Now, I like that. Because what God kind of tells us here is that he's, did you notice they kind of run in parallel? He's a really great person, and one of the ways to note that is look at how tall he is. Which, by the way, is going to become funny in a couple ways. One of the ways is that ultimately, sooner or later, if you know the story, a little spoiler alert, he's going to get to this point in his unrepentant state where he's going to go to a woman who's a medium. You know, she's kind of a psychic, right? And he tries to pretend like he's somebody else. How does a guy you know, a half a meter taller than everyone else, pretend like he's someone else. 
That's like everybody is, you know, oopaloopasized and like Yao Ming steps into the place. You know, he's this gigantic guy. And all of a sudden he's like, what do you do, walking on your knees? And she just, she misses the fact. I mean, what kind of gal is this going to be if she can't even tell when a guy's a giant in comparison? But it's important to recognize that what we're going to see soon, by the way, is that the people that they're going to fight against are the Philistines. And the Philistines kind of are known for their giants. We're going to certainly see that, of course, in chapter 16 when David starts to take on Goliath. But it's like nice to have that now. If you were to pick a person solely upon fleshly means, who would you want to represent you? Wouldn't you want somebody big? Wouldn't you want somebody gorgeous? I mean, you think, well, of course, that person represents me. I mean, why not? But we read not only that, but he was also rich. The term here for mighty man of power, and you're probably aware of this, the terms for things like might traditionally are words like weighty, heavy. And the terms normally, because let's face it, a heavier person's harder to move. Well, usually that means in social, in a society, that the guy's got a lot of cash. And we're going to see that in regards to donkeys. Now that means little to you, probably. But it tells us that. And he gives us these names. Benjamin, son of my right hand. Kish means to bend like a bow. Chabiel means my father God. Uh, Zeror means to be bound or tied or packed in. Bechorat means the firstborn. Abfia means I will make to breathe. So you have the son of my right hand bends. Father God is bound, if you will, or binds his firstborn whom he makes to breathe. We get all of that in that. But, but I look at all of this and I realize this guy's a good looking guy. But the problem is that that's what we would see. And God picks a guy that we would pick because man, as we read in first, we'll see in First Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he picks somebody that you have an unconsecrated people. So who represents an unconsecrated people? Well, an unconsecrated person. Unconsecrated people who are not setting apart their heart to God are going to live on the outside, which, by the way, Jesus will have to deal with, of course, with the religious leaders, uh, because they do it all on the outside. But in the end of it all, the guy's heart's in the wrong place. And we read in verse 3 then, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, Please take one of the servants, that tells us he's got several, because it's not just the servant, with you, Arise and go and look for the donkeys. Now, stop for a moment, and we'll get into this. We'll pick the text up a little bit as the story proceeds. Donkeys are a really big deal in the Middle East. They are called the engineers of the Middle East. It's like owning a tractor in the Midwest. Because a donkey does a lot of things for you. They're much smarter than horses. You're probably familiar with that. Probably, you've, I think we've told you the story of friends of ours that run this camp. It's a Christian camp where there are horses in America. And they have these horses, and, and they were a friend of ours was sort of trying to ride one, and they're like, well, you have to learn the, the phrases. And, and they're like, well, what are the phrases? And you say, well, hallelujah, and if you say hallelujah, the horse takes off. Well, then how do you get the horse to stop? You have to say amen. Well, that only makes sense. When you say amen, the horse stops. And he goes, well, give it a try. So the guy hops on the horse, and he goes, hallelujah, you have to say it loud, hallelujah, and the horse takes off on him. And the horse is running and running, and he's galloping, and he can't even get rhythm, and he's just getting smacked by the saddle, and he's just holding on for dear life. And he's coming near a cliff, and he sees the cliff, and he's like, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And he's like, what's the word again, what's the word again? And he's like, selah, no, that's not it. Uh, and just as he's about to go to the cliff, he's like, oh, amen! And the horse stops, and he looks over, and he's like, oh, hallelujah. Yeah, I'll let you figure that one out. All right, well, here's the point. Horses aren't very quick. They're not very, they're in regards to intellectually. That's why they have to do things like they'll run off a cliff. And because they'll run off a cliff, 
you really don't want that kind of guy figuring out your, your past through something. However, like on the Grand Canyon, they only allow donkeys or mules to take you down because donkeys will find the safest route. They're more sure-footed. They'll actually find the safest route from one place to another. And that's important because what happens is to the Middle East to this day, and a lot of places that are less developed, they will take donkeys and they'll lead them on and let them go because the way that they go is the way they build the roads because they know it's the safest route to take. The space in Jerusalem to this day, in many places like Damascus, had to be places where the width of the buildings in a street had to be the width of a donkey with a burden. So when you had a donkey, you had something important. And you were considered, in the simplest sense, you were considered upper middle class if you had one. Because not every, most people didn't. But you were considered wealthy if you had two. Kish here, we read, has donkeys and it appears to be more than a couple. The guy is, is well off. But I start to think about this and I realize what happens here is you have a bunch of donkeys. They're strong. They're very pig-headed in the sense they're very stiff-necked. They're, they, they go their way and their way alone. They're very determined, obstinate creatures. And I wonder if God's actually, I mean, understand God's going to use this to steer this whole situation. And it just seems like a simple errand. Oh, those stupid donkeys again. But think about this. God could have directed Saul to the situation a million different ways. He could have picked them up and carried them over there. He could have done it through a rumor. He could have done it through a million ways. And he chose wandering donkeys. You ever wonder if God was doing this because he was kind of letting us know what he was seeing the nation as? A bunch of wandering donkeys that needed to be sought after. And the term for sought after is Saul, for what that's worth. So, Dad says, hey, go, go find my donkeys. They're lost. Our donkeys. Find, pick one of the servants. Which one of you think is the best donkey-finding servant? And let's go. Verse 4, so they passed through the mountains of Ephraim. And through the land of Shalisha, which means intensified or trebled, they didn't find him. They passed through the land of Sha'alim. Sha'alim, by the way, means foxes. And they were not there. So they passed through the land of the Benjamites, and they didn't find him. And they finally came to the land of Zuf. Zuf means honeycomb. Uh, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Uh, by the way, this doesn't sound like Saul's a troublemaker. This sounds like Dad cares. He's like, you know, we're going to be out a little late at this point, and I think Dad's going to start getting worried about us. And I, I do like that. That tells me it appears as if this father really does care. Verse 6, you know, he's saying to his servant, we should go. Dad's going to be less concerned about the donkeys than he is about us, which I appreciate. Verse 6, he says to him, the servant says, now, now look, there is in this city a man of God, and he's an honorable man. And all that he says surely comes to pass. Let's go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. I think it's interesting. That tells me that not everyone knew Samuel. Because if everyone knew Samuel that well, apparently Saul didn't. Well, they would have gone, hey, we're near Sam's place. We should go visit him. We don't have that. Strange, the servant seems to know this. Samuel doesn't. I think that's interesting. That a man of God that God spends so much press on up to this point, somebody Saul seems to be ignorant of. Verse 7, Saul says to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone. There's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul, and he said, Look, 
I have here at hand a quarter of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Now, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, let us go to the seer. Seer, by the way, is the idea of one who sees. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So Saul said to his servant, well, well said, come on, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul said, let's turn back. Dad's going to be worried about me. Obviously, he seems to care more about me than the donkeys. And the servant says, well, wait a minute. We are so close to a guy that seems to have insight from God. And everything he says comes to pass. Why don't we go and check with this guy? The interesting thing is, in the culture that they're in at the moment, Saul's response is, but we don't have anything to pay him. And I think, wait a minute. Men of God need gifts to serve? Is that a scary thought? Now, is there any part of you that kind of rises indignation when you read that? Because there's a part of me that thinks, okay, my first thought is Acts 8.20, where Peter turns to Simon from where we get Simon. He says, oh, your money perished with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. But, but I, I realize this. I'm like, well, wait a minute, though. Before I go any farther and cast my stone, well, what about me? Am I willing to serve without thanks? Am I willing to serve without applause? Am I willing to serve without everyone giving me credit or even acknowledging what I'm doing? Because isn't that still payment? Do I go, fine, I'll only do what I have to do because, after all, no one else seems to notice anyways. Well, am I doing it for men or am I doing it for God? Because if what I'm doing for God has to take some form of payment, I'll be honest, I'm just as guilty as Simon is in, in Acts 8. Well, consider that. So he looks and he goes, well, what do you have? And he's like, well, I got a quarter shekel of silver. Now, does that mean anything to you? Do you think, oh, I probably have a quarter shekel of silver in my pocket. A shekel, for what it's worth, is about 11.34 grams. Silver, as of yesterday, was 12.61 pounds a gram. So a full shekel, therefore, would be roughly 143 pounds. He's got a quarter of it, which means that what he's got in his pocket is roughly 35 pounds, 75 pence. So imagine you're going, well, we can really assume help. Well, we don't don't have anything to give the guy. And he's like, well, you know what? I've got about 35 pounds in my pocket, 36 pounds. Why don't I give him that? Okay, sure. I don't know if that's cheap or what, but it's still pay. So they went up to the hill of the city, verse 11. They met some young women going out to draw water, and they said, is the seer here? Remember, they used to call him that instead of prophets. And they answered and said, sure, there he is. Just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice for the people on the high place. And as soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Now afterward, those who were invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear that day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow at about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him commander over my people, Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because the cries come to me. Now, there's a special event that obviously... Samuel responded to. God whispers, imagine if God whispered in your ear today. 
I'm going to send somebody really special to your house tomorrow. Which of us would respond in preparation to it? Uh, or maybe not just like, no, you know, it isn't like the Lord says, hey, Jenny, I'm sending somebody special. So Jenny's like, well, then I better look at the best I can because that might be my future husband. Or whatever. We're not saying that. What we're saying is it's somebody that I'm going to use in a way that's going to transform the world. Do you prepare a big feast? I mean, think of the faith that you have to do when this is a public event where Samuel has set apart specific meat we're going to see in a moment. He's done this whole thing. He's like, now listen, we're not even getting started until I'm doing this because this isn't about just people having a big feast. This is a really big deal because somebody important is going to show up tomorrow. Now, what if nobody shows up? How dumb do you look? But Samuel seems to, by this point, be confident to know when the voice of the Lord is speaking to him. Now, obviously, the first time the Lord spoke to him, he didn't recognize him. He thought it was Eli. But he's learned by this point, and there's something about learning the voice of the Lord enough so that when you recognize the voice of the Lord, you really do something with it in faith. Because pretending, once you do know what's the voice of the Lord, and you don't do anything and try to tell God you weren't sure, I don't think it plays well with him. Because like, that's not my excuse. And I have kids like that. I understand that. Well, Dad, I don't think I heard you. So sometimes you like to put promises in the middle of it, because they seem to always hear them. We do too, by the way. We hear the promises. We're glad to read the promises of God. It's the other stuff that we're a little hard to grab a hold of. So God told him, and he acted on it. But there's a special feast. Saul's just looking for donkeys, can I remind you? He's just looking for wandering donkeys. He has no clue that a giant feast is about to happen that he's going to be the guest of honor for. He has no clue. Please hear me. We use the term well because it's easier to use than the wandering donkeys. But often the Lord puts you in these places where you're going to do something that kind of seems really, for honest, inconvenient. It's out of the ordinary, and it's going to cost you a little something. Some time, some effort, some energy or whatever. And you kind of think in the end of it all, here's my job. Go find the dumb donkeys, figure out how to get them back, and get them, bait them back, get them back to the house. And that's it. You don't think beyond that. You have no idea that what God's doing in this, in, in this moment of inconvenience, in this area of inconvenience, is something that's going to change you for the rest of your life. And you can't see it. Because you haven't read the next chapter of your life either. So what happens is all of a sudden, and I I wonder how many times there is a moment of inconvenience and we do that, you know, forget it. Nah, I'll just let this one pass. I wonder how many amazing events were set up that we didn't show up at, to be honest, because we weren't even willing to go after the dumb donkeys. It is often in those moments of simple, mundane monotony where God steps into that situation, rips the roof off, and shows us something so magnificent, we're kind of just jaw-dropped and agape over the whole thing. I mean, David was following the sheep. When he gets called, Moses was tending the sheep in the back of the desert. When God spoke in a burning bush, I guarantee you, it isn't like Moses woke up that day and told the sheep, all right, you guys, let's wander to where there's going to be a cool talking bush. I mean, clearly he didn't see that coming. He hadn't read the chapter yet. And I wonder what errand this week God has on you. That's a wandering donkey errand. A wandering donkey errand where you're like, you know what? I'm going to do it because 
because my dad told me to, and it's just all I know. But I'm going to stay available because maybe it's going to be something more than just finding donkeys. Because oddly enough, the one thing Saul's not going to get in all of this is finding the donkeys. He is never going to find these donkeys. But he's going to go look for them. And when he's like, let's turn back, and the servant says, let's give this one more try. Let's bring God into this situation. Hear me, let's bring God into that situation. Saul could have easily done, which one of us wouldn't? Yeah, but I've already concluded in my mind, my heart is set to go home now. I don't want to have to, you know, become more flexible and, and really change that. Well, I'm just going to do this thing. Let me get it over with. It's a school assignment. Let me just get it done. It's a chore. It's an errand. Let me just get it done. This is taking longer than I thought. Let's bring God into it. You have no idea that God has this giant feast set up. That you're going to sit at the guest of honor because you weren't a guest of honor. I mean, your dad's already rich. It wasn't like the guy was uninfluential. So, the Lord tells him, you're going to to anoint this guy. Let me say this quickly and we'll move on. Samuel was forewarned his job was to anoint. And I've learned some things about anointing in Scripture because people love to use terms like this. Oh, that was so anointed. You got the anointment. First of all, in Exodus 25, 6, God is a specific anointing. You don't just cover people in things like animal fat or, or uh, animal urine, uh, which, by the way, were some of the things that other people were anointed in. I'm really glad that olive oil, I, I definitely opt in for oil over pee any day. But in God's opinion in this, it was oil with spices and that was sweet. It had a beautiful smell to it and a unique smell. God's anointing was unique. But it was also interesting because it had nothing to do with the animals where everything else seemed to be you were anointed in something that involved an animal to do the whole idea of getting its power. Because we weren't trying to get power from an animal. We were already trusting in the power of God. Second is anointing consecrates. That's the key. Exodus 28:41, when Aaron was anointed, it says, you shall put upon them, Aaron, your brother and your sons, your sons you shall anoint them, consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests, which also tells me, as we do in Exodus 30, 30, that anointing is necessary for ministry. As you anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. In Psalm 133, verse 2, it tells me this about anointing. When we read, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity. Behold how good, how beneficial, how pleasant it is for the brothers to do well together. In unity, it says it's like the precious oil upon the beard running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edges or edge of his garment. Which tells me that when Aaron was anointed, he was anointed completely. It wasn't a little splashy do. It wasn't a little on the thumb and a little something to stick on the forehead. When Aaron was anointed, Aaron was covered. 
Now, I, we've done these anointings. Every time we anoint, or if you will, we ordain somebody, we officially acknowledge them as a pastor. Somebody, by the way, that's always saying they are too. By this point, often they don't start that way. But the Lord raises them up. We cover them. Because we want to do it like this. I mean, they, you know, whether you got the plastic bag over you, you know, the, the bin liner with a hole poked out of it to stick your head on it, you get covered. Because we want to anoint the way the Bible does. But I want to put you into this perspective for just a moment about this anointing, and then we'll move on. Aaron is in the middle of the, of the desert when he's anointed. It seems to be broad day when Aaron is anointed. He's put on these beautiful clothes that God has specifically made for him. For his beautification, we read, and his sanctification. The clothing that Aaron had set him apart and also made him look pretty darn good, is what God said. But then he's covered in this oil. What would Aaron look like standing in the noonday sun? being anointed, how would he look different from anyone else? He'd start to glow. I mean, that guy would refract the sun like no other person around him. I think, oh, that we would have that kind of anointing. I mean, when we think of anointing, we usually think, God, give me... It's almost like, God, give me the spiritual version of toxic waste that when I fall in it, I become a superhero. You know, I want some kind of cool power, something kind of like x man kind of, I don't know, you know, I can teleport or I can move things or something. God, give me something cool like, you know, like Joshua to make the sun stand still or, you know, I mean, there's like, or like, like Philip where I can transport to a Zoltis. I mean, give me something cool, God, and anoint me for that. But it, notice that it's all about us. But the anointing of God was specific to consecrate for ministry. So we could become servants, not celebrities. And then, of course, as we read in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians one twenty one, it says, He who establishes, you, uh, establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God. God's the anointer. And he tells us in 1 John 2.20 that the anointing we have from the Holy One, as we know, is from the Holy One. We know all things. He's, t- he's taught us all things. And that anointing, God makes clear, is His Holy Spirit. Now imagine if the reason we wanted the Holy Spirit to come upon us wasn't so that we could become the next Samson, but rather so that we could shine Christ and be set apart for ministry. Set apart to be a humble servant. Can you imagine what happened if you had a bunch of anointed servants? How beautiful things would get. Well, that's Samuel's job here. He has to set aside a guy that's a head taller. So I wonder, you ever wonder how he had to do that if the guy was that much taller? And Samuel, by this point, I remind you, was old. Verse 17, it says, And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is. The man in whom I spoke to you, this one shall reign over my people. So Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate, and he said, Please tell me, where's the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul, and he said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will tell you, I will let you go and tell you all that is in your heart. But as for the donkeys, 
that were lost three days ago, don't be anxious about them. They've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on your father's house? That's kind of fun, isn't it? Because clearly he's going, to make, he's going to validate. But there's something that stands out right from the beginning of this in regards to consecration. Because there's one guy that's consecrated. It appears to be Samuel. Did you notice that, Sam, that Saul and his servant walk up to Samuel and they're like, Excuse me, uh, where's the seer's house? We're looking for the seer. And Samuel's like, I'm the guy you're looking for. Which tells me that Samuel didn't put on this cool, I'm the prophet vibe thing going on. We didn't just deck out the prophet thing because he wouldn't have to ask him. He wouldn't go, oh, well, clearly you're the prophet because check out your prophet vibe. You know, there's none of that going on. Samuel must have looked like everybody else. And I really like that. And we have that here. The danger, of course, is some guy comes in and he's really well-dressed and, and somebody that, that's, not, that's not familiar with the church comes in and starts talking to them thinking they're the pastor. Because then they look and they go, Can you, excuse me, where's the pastor? And I'm like, which one? I'm like, what do you mean, which one? Isn't there, a, you know, isn't there sort of a main celebrity here? I'm like, yes, his name is Jesus. Would you like to meet him? I'll take you to him. But isn't it beautiful here that Samuel's just not playing like, check it out, I'm the, I'm the big thing. And with that, then, he turns and he's like, by the way, let me just make sure you know I know what I'm talking about. Don't worry about those donkeys that have been found. Saul's response is a bit in shock. 21, it says, Saul answered, and he said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Am I my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak like this to me? And after Judges 21, 20, and 21, where, remember, they killed all but 600 uh, Benjamites, I could see why he would say that. Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into a hall, into the hall, set them in a place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 people. Interesting, because the last time I saw 30 people, by the way, was when Benjamin thought that they were winning and killed 30 men of Israel. And then Israel turned and lured them out of the city and killed them. The last time I saw before that was another great feast, Samson's, where Samson had to be, in other words, you had to hire people to stand on Samson's side of the party, of the wedding party, and they hired 30 guys to do so, none of which Samson knew. Interesting, because Samson, of course, was a guy way out of control, but still used by God. We're going to see that with Saul. And then Samuel said in verse 23 to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said you set it apart. And the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is, what I kept back. And it is set apart for you. Eat. For until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. And Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place of the city, Samuel spoke to Saul on the top of the house. Now, don't miss this. He's like, I've got a particular part. I've got a, I've got steak set aside for you. Now, I don't know which one of us as guys would go, oh, bummer. Uh, you know, I, what's clear also here is it seems like Saul's not a vegetarian. But, but in that, it's like, why the thigh? Is that the best meat? You know, what's interesting is that in Exodus 29, verse 22, when God talks about offering the sacrifices, He says, you take the fat of the ram, the fat tail that covers the entrails, fatty lobe, the liver, the two kidneys, and the fat, all of them. You get all this stuff, and it's like the stuff that only Scots would eat. Now, that's going to be offered to God. And he says, and the right thigh, because it's the ram of consecration. The breast is the wave offering, 
And the thigh is the heave offering, as we see here and in Leviticus 7.32. Now, don't miss this. Two offerings. The breast is the wave offering. The thigh is the heave offering. The idea of it is two parts that are a bit heavy. The thigh is the part that you, that you chuck on to ultimately cook because you would, you'd throw all of your cares and concerns of who you are upon God, upon the fire. But the breast is the part you would wave, kind of like smoke signals, as an act of worship and gratitude for what God's going to do. I find it interesting, only one of the two pieces of meat has shown up here. The part, if you will, that bears the burden, but not the part that's lifted in praise. And I think that's what happens when we're unconsecrated. We'll still bear the burden instead of Christ. But we won't wind up in praise, and our praise will be so lacking. And I get the hint of it even here. Verse 26, they rose up early about the dawning of the day, and Samuel called to Saul at the top of the house, and he said, Get up, that I may send you on your way. That's good morning Samuel style. How do you like that? It's like the sun hasn't risen. Imagine he's like, Get up, so I can send you out. Like again. So as Saul arose, both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell your servant to go ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here for a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. And I like this, that the calling was intimate. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? I love the fact that he anointed him and affirmed him. And he gives us these three signs. And we'll go through this relatively quickly, but it is really important to see what happens here. We won't get through the entire chapter because part of it will actually lead better into the next section. But look at these three really fun and funky signs. Samuel tells Saul this, starting in verse 2. When you've departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin in Zelza. Zelza means the shadow. And they will say to you, the donkeys in which you went to look for have been found. And your father has now ceased caring about the donkeys and worried about you, saying, what am I going to do with my, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go forward from there, and you'll come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. And there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats. I, I stop, I, I can't go beyond this. Have you ever seen young goats? Young goats, I challenge you just to get, you know, if you're the kind that's a YouTuber or whatever, go just look for videos of young goats. They're like springed wild things. They're like, doing, doing, doing. We saw them back in the States. We'd see these young goats. And they just, they literally jump over each other. I, the idea of one guy carrying three of those, to me, that's just, that's just funny. Anyways, and it says that you will, they'll, they'll meet you there. One guy carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And when they greet you, this is, they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you've come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instrument, with a stringed instrument, just one, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy 
with them and be turned into another man. And let it be that when these signs come to you, that you shall do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and I surely will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, we'll get into the last part. We'll only get, by the way, God willing, to verse 16. But listen, he says, these are three strange things that are going to happen. Now, what all a sign is, is an extraordinary event that validates a message, not a messenger. The message is, you're going to be king and I've anointed you king. Now, here's the way to prove it. Now, let's just put it this way, if we could. In context, these are three things that predate and prepare you for your calling. Here's the first. You're going to go to a place in Benjamin. By the way, I imagine he's a Benjamite. And there, someone is going to tell you what was lost was found. And your father is concerned. Your father cares. Let me see, this is where it starts. In your calling, and I genuinely believe, as God makes clear in Scripture, every Christian has a distinct, bespoke, beautiful calling on their life. Shantae's calling is only Shantae's calling. And it's none of ours. I can't, it doesn't fit me. It's the same way that her clothes wouldn't fit me. And we both can be thankful for that. Jenny's calling is Jenny's calling. It will not fit Evan. Evan's calling will not fit Jenny. Yonelli's calling is uniquely Yonelli's. And this is where it's got to start. Because my prayer is, as you fall in love with Jesus, you will step into your calling with great joy. As Claudia steps into her calling, as Bruno steps into his calling, it starts with this. What was lost is now found. You've got to know to whom you belong. And it's more than just that. That you have a father who is concerned about you. He genuinely cares. And I don't know on earth whether you have that. But I can tell you in heaven you do. Part of my, what I get to do is, here as a pastor is try to represent a dad that's concerned here. And Saul has to first conclude this in his first step of the three. That which is lost is found. In Luke 15, when he tells us, by the way, of the prodigal son, the father rejoices because he said, that which was dead is now alive again and what was lost is now found. And he'll conclude the concept of that in Luke 19.10 when he says that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Do you know tonight how loved you are by your Heavenly Father? How genuinely concerned He is about you? Or do you think somehow you're just kind of a an employee in a huge heavenly institution. He loves you. And because he loves you, he has, like a father would to his son, a unique calling to invest in you. Just you. But that's not our only step. Step two, you go to the tree of Tabor. Tabor, by the way, is a round hill, and they call it Tabor because Tabor means round. It's a unique hill. It's the easiest one to spot when you're actually, for instance, over, overseeing in the Valley of Jezreel, somewhere near uh, Megiddo, because you look and you just look for the one that looks like a big pimple. And you go, yeah, that's it. 
And you go to a place, and it says, going up to God at Bethel. Bethel, of course, means God, house of God. And you have these guys that are coming. One's bringing three goats that would be, if you will, young goats. It's a sin sacrifice. Uh, with that, did you notice it's bread and wine? Did you notice that? There's the sin sacrifice and the communion table. And he tells us here that the guy's going to give you bread. And once he gives you bread, receive it. Take it. And don't just take it and hold on to it. Eat it. The second thing, and please don't miss this, beloved, because we're almost done. Please don't lose me at this moment, because this has got to be it for us. Please hear me. When we get that, okay, I know I'm saved. I know that I'm blood-bought. I know I'm adopted, and I know my Father cares. But is your hunger met in Him at His table? Because if your hunger is not met at His table, you'll never grab your calling the way God put you. Not the way He's designed it for you. So what happens is you try to make a name somewhere else and you try to get satisfaction elsewhere and you try to prove yourself and you try to do all of these things because truth be told, the hunger is not met at the table of the Lord where it belongs, but where the sin sacrifice is offered for you, where the bread is broken and where the wine is offered is a relationship and love that where the joy should overflow. That's got to happen. Because if I don't have this happen, I will never let my heart be consecrated for the ministry, for the purpose of the ministry he's called me to in the first place. If you will, that's to sanctify. There's salvation and then there's sanctification right there. But there's, that's not all. He says, then you'll go, did you notice, to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. The Philistines we've seen have been a role for the flesh. And it's like, where the flesh has actually set up and actually set up a fortress? That I feel like this will never go down. This will always be a part of my life. And he says, there, but here's the good news. You know, I didn't tell you to go up there to fight them. I said, you go up there, seek me there, and the Spirit's going to come upon you and you will be transformed. I mean, once God actually starts to set you apart, you know you're saved. You know God is sanctifying you through the power of His Spirit as He's meeting your hunger and showing you, giving you new and fresh appetites for Him. The only thing left is to go, all right, God, I need your power to do your work. And the Holy Spirit has to do more than just empower me. You need to make me a different person. A person that looks like you. Oh, God, please come upon me. And that's what we read. But he says, that's the part God's going to do. He's going to save you, set you apart, and then he's going to empower you. But there's the part you need to do, too. He says, when all this happens, you need to know God is with you. Here's your part. Go down. Did you see in verse 8 it says, go down before me to Gilgal? Did you see that? Geographically, where do you think Gilgal is from where they're standing? Up or down? Down. That should be pretty simple, right? Why Gilgal? Because Gilgal was the place of consecration. When Israel had just crossed the dry Jordan that God actually stopped at Achdam by Zebatan, Israel camped at Gilgal in Joshua 4.19 and there he circumcised the second generation to consecrate them and said, Therefore, we have rolled away the reproach. They kept the Passover 510 of Joshua at twilight. 
It was the place where people went to consecrate themselves to God. Interesting, it is one of the places on Samuel's circuit at the end of 1 Samuel 7, when he went year to year on a circuit, Bethel, remember that place? Gilgal and Mizpah. But he always wound up then back where he's from. This was his circuit. And he says, I want you to go down there, and there we're going to offer a couple offerings. The burnt offering of total surrender, and the peace offering to celebrate your relationship with being right with God. Now the reason I say that is, as we read our last verses and close this up, look at what we see happen. Verse 9. So it was when he turned back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. This is what he needs to do with all of us as he tells us in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. His new covenants to give us a new heart. All those signs did come to pass with him on that day. But just because, and here's the point, just because God gives us a new heart does not mean we'll always be obedient. It says, when all these things came to pass that day, verse 10, when they came to pass there to the hill, there was the group of prophets that met him. The Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. And it happened, all who knew him formerly said that he indeed prophesied among the prophets. And that the people said to one another, oh, what is this that's come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now we wouldn't say, I mean, that's, it becomes a proverb and people go, it says, there, then the man from there answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? Well, well, what does that mean? Saul among the prophets. Well, Saul, in essence, was he, was he was a wealthy guy that didn't seem to be somebody you would expect to prophesy. And the whole idea of is, wow, I guess it could happen to anyone. There's the idea. Saul among the prophets? I mean, that would be like, you know, that would be like saying, you know, is Hugo among the giants? You know, or as whoever among the wealthy, it's like, wow, this is such a bizarre place to find such a guy, which tells me that though the Lord gave him another heart, that doesn't mean he doesn't have to revert to it. Wow. What this tells us is that the Saul that they knew before, they would never have expected to prophesy. Oh, is he among the prophets? Hey, really? Is Saul among the prophets? Hey, that's the beauty of Calvary Chapel and what God does here. Some of you have come from such wonky places that people would look and go, Are you Christian? Have you become religious? Man, if you could become religious, clearly anyone could be. Well, there's the idea. But listen in our last verses. Verse 13. So when he had finished prophesying all the things that God promised came to pass, he went where on verse 13? To the high priest. Well, if he went to the high place, where could we be sure it wasn't? Gilgal. Why? Excellent, because Gilgal here would have had to go down to. But he went up to the high place instead. Remember, the place Gilgal was the place to consecrate and to offer the offerings of total surrender. That's the burnt offering. And the one of being made right with God. That's the peace offering. Without total surrender, you'll never be made totally right. Not the way you need to in your heart. And we're already going to see signs from it immediately. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where'd you go? So he, apparently, wherever this high place is, his uncle's there. Seems like he's gone home. Where'd you go? He says, well, apparently even the uncle didn't know that he was sent on this errand. And he said, we have to look for the donkeys. 
When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. So Saul's uncle said, well, tell me, please, what did Sam say to you? Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about this matter of the kingdom, he didn't tell him what Samuel had said. How a sad way to end this portion. This portion ends with somebody giving you an opportunity. And this is what's going to happen when we are, obviously, Saul's immediately in compromise. And yet, in this compromise, somebody immediately pushes you to the opportunity to confirm what God already is doing in your life. And you back off of it right away because when you're in compromise, though it doesn't look like it, you're in retreat is what you're in. Because you should be full on for the Lord. And compromising means I'm not going to be full on. Then you're not going like you should. So someone asks, well, hey, so what's your church about? And, you know, there would have been a time you'd be like, oh, let me tell you about what the Lord's doing. And let me tell you what he's doing in my life and in the lives of the people around me. When we love each other, let me just tell you about what's going on. But now you're just kind of like, let's talk about football. Or let's talk about this or that. Or I mean, hey, did you hear the news? Or wow, lovely weather, which we all know was a diversion tactic. Where before we would be like on it because it was on our lips, because it was in our hearts. But now when our hearts aren't consecrated, you know what we look like? Well, we represent Israel. What does Israel look like? Well, they're really trying to look like the world. So like, how do I sort of almost tell you about Jesus in a way that sort of almost doesn't make me look like a freak? How do I sort of do it in a way so that you don't get angry and you don't disqualify me, you don't call me a nutter, but instead we still can be friends? But can I really say I'm being a friend to somebody? and still really not really care whether they go to hell? How in the world can I do that? As we conclude this time, please hear me in this. Here's Saul. And we see these two things, and one of them is going to win. A fantastic calling or no consecration. One is going to pull the other one in its camp. And if you've read ahead, you kind of know it's a tragic story. And the reason is, what could have happened with that fantastic calling if his heart was right? Praise God, we do have a king with a fantastic calling and total consecration. And his name is Jesus. And praise God, we see what could happen. The entire universe was transformed. God in the flesh, God's Son, Jesus. But we have God living inside of us. What would it be like? Now, you may not know how huge the calling is God's placed on your life, but I guarantee you, God doesn't do little things. He doesn't make little plans. What would happen if we were set apart like we should? Well, instead of going to the high place of exaltation, we went to the low place of humility. Instead of going to the place where ultimately he'll be saying, honor me, even in his firing. Getting on his face and saying, you know what? There should be total surrender. And I should celebrate that I'm right with you. Samuel said, by the way, you're going to wait a week. Notice that. By the way, that'll happen again later. Where Saul will really start to manifest on the outside the things that God's showing us on the end. Please hear me as we bring this to prayer. What would it have been like if God had given you such a great calling 
and said, this is all I'm going to do. I'm going to do these really crazy things to really validate that. And then you just went on with life. Because what Samuel said is, I want you to get apart. Do you remember how long he was supposed to be at Gilgal? A week. Imagine getting that kind of great calling. He goes, now, before you go anywhere else, I want you to go to Gilgal, and I want you to get alone for a week. What would you do in that week? You'd sit there and you'd see the stones that were left as memorials that were there at Gilgal about how God moved the Jordan River because they had to still be there by this point, didn't they? Wouldn't they? You'd have to see how the tabernacle was once set up there before they moved it to Shiloh. The remnants of the camp, when they sat there and they looked at Jericho before God took down the wall through Joshua. I mean, imagine the history that's in this one place where what I would see is, Oh, God took me through the impossible when I was a dead man. And then how God set me apart and how God took the giants down in front of me. I'd be able to see all of that in this week where I got alone with God and said, God, if you've really put a great calling on me and you've now confirmed it in pretty radical ways, don't let me just jump into this thing. Let me make sure that I'm well aware of your rep beforehand so that I can trust you and, and do those things you call me to. Consecrate my heart to you. My family has this rare opportunity because we were stuck in some pretty radical situations the last couple of years. You're aware of it. We're all aware of the fact to live every day in London is a miracle. We're not just talking about getting, not getting robbed or mugged or killed, but we're talking about this one other thing, and that's actually to be able to afford to even live here and pay rent. It's a miracle. And in that miracle, beloved, God has done some crazy things over the last couple of years to keep us here, our family. And we can say things that are even much more crazy than a guy carrying three young goats, some bread and wine. But are we willing to set ourselves apart and say, all right, now consecrate my heart. Let's face it, do we not need to consecrate our hearts to live in this city? It'll take you down and you'll be all full of the flesh instantly if you're not. So let's pray that God do that as we seek to assimilate, to assume the callings God's placed on our life. You pray with me. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and the opportunity just to pray right now. I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the way you guide and lead us in it. I, Lord, I want to learn, as you've told us, the things that were written before were written for our learning. I want to learn from Saul. And I want to learn how not to do what he did and all of the wrong things he did. And I recognize the one thing you focus on is the heart, because clearly his heart was not consecrated. And I pray, God, instead of seeking to find the high place where I could be elevated, give me to that place, the low place, where I could be consecrated. Where I could say, Lord... I want to be your servant, so here I am, Lord. Mirosten, and I do believe that Jesus did that. He could have taken just simply the high road, but instead he took the highest by becoming the lowest, becoming found as a man and even that a servant and obedient even to death on the cross. He bore all of my sins, all of our sins, and died on the cross by his choice. 
to redeem me and then rose again to offer me new life. And I know that new life is one where I'm no longer lost but found. But I confess to you that my hunger can wander like the donkeys. And I don't want to be another wandering donkey. And I pray, Lord, that my hunger could be fully met in you in such a way that as you come upon me, that I do your will, your way, for your purposes. So, Lord, please, consecrate every heart here, including mine, that we would step into the bespoke ministries you've given us. And in stepping into those bespoke ministries, that you would transform the world as we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.